fact, anybody's been wondering what this stuff is all about. Hey, guys. We've been in the book of Exodus for 10 weeks now. And last week, we got through the Red Sea, the story that a lot of people have in mind when they think about the book of Exodus and the infamous parting of the waters and the people passing through and on into the promised land and the freedom that God had sent them. Uh, we are going to jump ahead this morning to the commands. Now, in order to do that, I had to skip a couple things that are quite important. Maybe we'll touch back on them in another time or in a group. But the manna and the quail that God sends to feed the people, the water that he gives them, because, of course, they would have died of thirst in the desert, an interesting interaction that Moses has with his father-in-law, Jethro. So there's some good stuff there. But I wanted to get us all the way to the commands today. And what we're going to read in just a moment is the overture. Now, most of us think about an overture in regards to music, right? If you took music and studied that, if you're into that, you know the overture is very often, uh, you know, encompasses a whole lot of what the entire musical piece is all about. It contains elements of all the parts of the whole musical. An overture isn't just limited to music. The overtures classically were whenever people would come together and have a meeting and seek to make an agreement. And they talk about the overture that they were going to agree on together. And so what I'm about to read you in the proper sense is the overture. This is the overture to the commands that God is giving, the law that God is about to give. Let me read this for us. Verse, uh, chapter 19, starting at verse 1, and then we're going to start breaking it down. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephimidim, I think I'm saying that right, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. This is the key part here. This is good stuff. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. It was... Many years ago now that I was in the midst of a conversation that turned towards the commands. And many conversations that turn toward the commands, we know, are usually in the context of controversy. Commands are either being posted or taken down in some courthouse somewhere in America. And a no-win situation is set up. On one side of the street are the people cheering. On the other side of the street are the people jeering. And in the midst of that, the entire context and the meaning of the commands most often 
and for most people, is tragically lost. Well, this person was getting a bit irate about the commands and why people seem to make a big deal about them and yet don't know them. And the interesting thing in this conversation is he knew who I was. He, he, he knew what I do. And yet he, I think, was you know, kind of just challenging maybe Christians don't really know anything about the commands and kind of, I bet nobody even knows the commands. I had to rise to the occasion, of course, and I just said in the context of a group, I do. I had everybody's attention, as you can imagine. Great opportunity for a preacher when everybody actually wants to listen to what I have to say. So everybody's just waiting. Does this guy actually know the commands? And, and now I'm about to tell you the commands as I told this group. I'm going to tell them to you in abbreviated form. I could have said anything and they would have believed it because none of them knew it. I mean, again, the Lord said, thou shalt buy me a ham sandwich. I mean, you could just say, you know, I mean, they would have had no context for it. I said, I promise you I'm going to tell you the right ones. Um, and I promise you... You can learn these. You can set them to memory. You know every single word to Bohemian Rhapsody. I know you do. I've heard you sing it on the radio. You can quote every line from the movie The Big Lebowski. Some of you in the house, I know you can do it. You know entire albums, you know, verbatim. You can remember 10 things quite easy if you just decide they're important enough to understand and to know and embrace the context of them. So I, I simply said, well, 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 here they are. They actually start out. They don't sound like commands when they start. I said, but I want to give you that part. It's maybe the most important part. I said, they begin like this. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols. Don't misuse my name. Keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. And don't covet. Now, there could have been like a gasp of awe by there. You know, you know, oh, he actually knows them. Wow. I mean, it's, it's, it's really not too hard to remember those ten Things, and I would commend it to you, uh, of course. But this is what I want to say now as we begin to move into the meaning of the commands. Most people don't know the commands because they really don't think the commands apply to them. We don't understand, we don't embrace, we don't memorize the commands because we don't think they apply to us. We don't think they're actually that important. We think they're, they have, we know, we have the sense of, oh, I think they're about like not killing people and I've not killed people, so what's really the point of these? But these are of paramount importance to the people of God and what is about to be revealed to them. Now, if you're a Christian and you grew up learning perhaps these commands in the context of a Sunday school classroom or in a, in a camp, I'm going to just venture a bet here that maybe you didn't learn them in the right context. If you're not a committed Christ follower, if you're somewhere on the spectrum seeking God, trying to decide if this Jesus is worth giving your life to, this could be very profound. This could be the fancy way to put it is for all of us, actually, I'll say this, Christian or, or, or seeker, this could be paradigm shifting to understand the actual context and revelation of the law of God. Because today we have the opportunity to really embrace the right context. You see, we've been going through 
the book of Exodus for 10 weeks now. And we've been through the divine deliverance. We have three movements in this book. The divine deliverance. God hears the cry of his people for help, for freedom, to fulfill the promises. He delivers them. He reveals then the divine decrees, his law, his word, how they're to order and organize their life. And then he'll go into some great instruction on the divine dwelling place of God. The revelation that God wants to be with his people ever and always. So we have divine deliverance, we have the divine decrees, and then we have the divine dwelling place of God. So what this revelation has given us is that we have God's love before we have God's law. We have God's love before we have God's law. And we have to get this order right. We have to get the love before we get the law. Order matters. Sequence matters, right? We've all heard about the causality dilemma, right? You all know the causality dilemma. No, you don't know what the, you know the causality dilemma. That's what the philosophers call what came first, the chicken or the egg. What came first, the chicken or the egg? You have to have a chicken to get an egg, but all chickens come from eggs. So what comes first, the chicken or the egg, the causality dilemma? Let me propose to you that the order of cause is no dilemma for God. His love comes before his law. The order matters. You can't get it backwards. You have to have the deliverance, the proof of God's love, before you get the law, how he wants us to live together. So what the law is doing, and please get this, what the law is doing it is confirming God's love. And we think it's to earn God's love. We think God gives us the law so that we can earn his love. He is giving us the law to confirm his love that he has already established. Are you beginning to understand the importance of the sequence and the order of events? First comes the deliverance, then the decrees. First God proves his love, and then he says, in the proof of my love. Do you want to know how life is best lived? The law confirms God's love for us, and yet we seem to always want to get it reversed. If I can fulfill the law, then I can earn God's love, and God wants us to understand desperately, I've confirmed my love for you. I have done all of the work on your behalf. And now this is the best way to live. And, and we get this relationally. We get this that love comes before law, that we have to confirm love before and not earn love. We, we get this in our relationships. I mean, if you want to test this out, try this with your kids or try this with your spouse this week, and you just propose to them, I have 10 rules that I'm going to give you, you know, dear husband or dear wife, I have 10 rules, and, and if you fulfill these 10 things, and they can be whatever on, you know, how you want the house to be kept in order, and how you want their appearance to be, and how you want things to be organized around the home, if you do these 10 things for me, then I will give to you my love. Would any of us accept that deal with a spouse? I'm hearing resounding, deafening sigh. No, no, no. You know, tell, tell your kids, you know, if you do keep these 10 rules of our house, then we will feed you. Then we will clothe you. Then we will shelter you. Then we will... No, no, no. We, we get it that relationships don't work that way. You don't give the law to 
earn the love. You give rules and boundaries to confirm the love. God gives us his love. God proves his love. And then he gives us his law. God is saying you don't have to earn this. This is to confirm this relationship that we have. And the reason is this. The reason is this. Because rules without relationship only leads to rebellion. Right? Rules without relationship only leads to rebellion. This is the foundation of our nation. Rules without relationship led to rebellion. Taxation without representation led to a revolution. Rules without relationship only leads to rebellion. So, what are the rules then that confirm the love and deepen the relationship? Let's go to the commands and let's tease this out with a bit of an example. In my house, there are two rules. And I didn't make them up. I didn't invent these. In fact, I stole them. I plagiarized them. Right from God, I took these rules from my household. In fact, right from the top ten, I took these rules from my household. Two rules. Remember the fifth and don't lie. Rule number one. Remember the fifth. Kids, your job is to honor your mother and I. Now, the way we know that they, that plays out is you have to respect your mama, right? I mean, everybody has experienced this, and I told my, tell my kids this all the time. If you want to see what will appear to you to be an irrational and exaggerated response from me, your father, disrespect your mama. I mean, that's just like the trigger for every dad. Can I get a little support? I mean, is that not like the situation in every home? There's something that just sort of turns on. It clicks in a dad, in a husband. When you disrespect mom, we go, my kids always say, ballistic. That's how it happens. So respect, honor your parents. Really, if you want to do it right, respect and honor your mama, and things are going to be really good in the household. The second thing is don't lie. Don't lie. If you lie, if you break trust, then we can't believe your word. We don't know what is fact from fiction. Don't lie. If you disrespect us and if you lie, the whole system breaks apart. And that has worked wonderfully for our household for the better part now of 19 years. Now, what happens if one of my children murders somebody? Well, we will insert, you know, rule number six. Thou shalt not murder as well. But so far, we're doing pretty good on honor your father and your mother and don't lie. And this will continue to confirm a relationship of mutual trust and respect. And we'll be able to continue in love together. So... We have the law to confirm God's love, not to earn God's love. We have God's love before we even have the revelation of the law, because God has sought to establish a relationship for us. So let us then look a little deeper now at what the law actually tells us, because it informs the relationship deeply. How does it all begin? Let's go right back to the very beginning. How do the commands start? The commands start like this. I am the Lord your God. Doesn't sound like much of a rule yet, does it? Sounds a lot like a relationship. I am not a God. 
I am not even the God. I mean, he is, but what he is saying is, I am your God. I am your God. And if you understand this at the outset, if this becomes the foundation that I am your God and I have begun this revelation to you out of love, then that changes everything. The revelation that he is our God and we're in relationship with him changes everything. I can't help but think of the infamous scene in Star Wars. Luke is battling Darth Vader. They're, you know, in a, you know, in a blood and guts, you know, to the death match. They're fighting, you know, Luke, you know, Luke is just dug in. He is the bad guy. He's the evil guy. And then it comes, Luke, I'm your father. I think I have the scene right. And what does it do? It changes everything, right? What? We have a relationship. There's a connection here whenever we get that he is our God, when we hear these words and allow them to soak in and begin to define who we are, the foundation begins to be set to embrace the revelation of the commands. I am the Lord, your God. And then what's the next part? I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery doesn't sound much like a rule yet. What it actually sounds like is a history lesson, right? It's a little mini history lesson. I brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery, because I love you. And you can never forget this if you're going to understand and embrace anything else I'm going to share with you. And when we think about this in the context of the Exodus, it almost seems ridiculous. How could you ever forget? For 400 years, you cried out for deliverance, and God heard you, and he came to you, and he sent you to deliver you, and he brought you out. How could you ever forget the 10 plagues that displayed the power of God? How could you ever forget the parting of the Red Sea, and you're passing through on dry land into the promised land? How could you ever forget the pillar of fire by night and cloud by day to guide and direct you and to protect you from the enemies? How could you ever forget the manna that I have sent for you from heaven? How could you ever forget the quail that I gave you when you wanted meat to eat? How could you ever forget the water from the rock when you were dying of thirst? How could you ever forget these things? And yet, we forget things, right? How many of us have forgotten a birthday, forgotten an anniversary, forgotten that school's about to start, forgotten to pay a bill? We forget the most important things all the time. We are a people of amnesia. We forget. We just forget. We get busy. We get distracted. We turn inwardly, and we forget. I'm going to point out something to you that you forgot. It has been in your bulletin for nearly a year now. Connections has existed. We're coming on a year, and this has been in your bulletin, and you've never noticed this. Somebody probably has. At the very top of the bulletin, when you open it up, it says... Reveal, respond, rejoice. This is to help us to remember. <laughs> this is the heart of remembering. We come here to reveal the truth of God. We come here to respond appropriately to what is shown to us. We come here to rejoice that God 
has won for us salvation at the cost of his own blood on the cross through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. This whole act is an act in so many ways, primarily of remembering, right? Remembering the promises, remembering the faithfulness, remembering the goodness and the greatness of our God. We reveal, we respond, we rejoice so that we can remember God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And if we get that right, everything else falls into place. If we understand the context that God's love comes before God's law, God's law becomes easy to remember, becomes easy to embrace, becomes easy to live by. Do not put any God between us and our Lord. Any person, any place, anything, any desire, any dream, do not put anything between us and God so that the relationship is clear, the path is open, and the connection remains. Now, I have to speed forward because this service has already taken some amount of time. There's been several analogies or illustrations used over the course of time on how we are to understand the law. Some people have described the law as a ladder. If we get each one right, we can climb up and we can eventually reach God. The problem is if we ever miss a step, we fall back down. And we can go through that cycle over a lifetime. So yes, there's an element to the law that we can work our way towards God. Yet the problem is, and God always knew it from the beginning, we would never fulfill the law for ourselves on our own behalf perfectly. So that's a limited understanding of the law. Paul, in the New Testament, I'm going to zip through a couple things. The band can get ready to come up because we're going to have to like keep it tight here now. We look at that. Everybody see yourselves there getting the, getting the angle just right there. Another way that we've understood the law, maybe as explained to you as a kid, is it's a mirror. The mirror shows us. Primarily, the mirror so often shows us that we are incapable of keeping it perfectly. Paul uses this throughout a lot of his letters. This idea of the mirror reflects the holiness of God that we can never measure up to. But perhaps one of the more helpful ways, I think, of understanding the law and this revelation of God's love for us is that it's more like a fence. This is actually a pallet, but it's the closest thing I could find around here that looked like a fence. Use your imagination. It's about to fall, people. Nope, it's going to hold. I remember I got our first house in North Carolina. Eden was just about three years old. It was a beautiful ranch house. Boy, if I could bring that property here, it was on an acre. Oh, it'd be worth, oh, I can imagine how much it'd be worth. We were so excited. We get ourselves moved in. Remember, it was probably about the first, maybe the first day, maybe the first time we brought the kids over as we were moving in. I remember I take Eden to the backyard, and I'm so excited. I said, Eden, someday all this will be yours. I know what you're thinking right now, Monty Python fans. Someday, Eden, all this, all this is here for you to enjoy. I walked her over the patio area. We have a picnic table and chairs and this fire pit. Oh, we're going to roast marshmallows and make s'mores and think about all the memories we're going to make together. It's going to be beautiful. 
And I took over to the playhouse. I said, Eden, we have this beautiful playhouse for you. Oh, we're going to play in here. I got a slide coming down, and maybe we can pull out sleeping bags, and we'll spend the night in this playhouse that we have here for you. It's going to be amazing. And I said, oh, and this is the best part, Eden. This is the best part of all. We got a trampoline. I know we're not supposed to, but I love trampolines. Trampolines are awesome. I got this trampoline. We're going to have so much fun. You're going to learn to do flips and all these cool things. And I'm going to make little skis for you that you can learn tricks. And some, they join the X Games. And not all my dreams have worked out for me. So I said, isn't this going to be amazing, Eden? Yeah, this is going to be amazing. I, I go in and I'm probably pretty proud of myself, patting myself on the back for being this awesome dad and spelling this all out for my kid. I can imagine myself at the time probably standing there in the bay window, drinking a cup of coffee, again, thinking how great my life is and my kids are. And I watch Eden go over to the playhouse, and she takes the wagon, and she pulls it over to the fence, and she climbs up onto the wagon, and she grabs her little hands on top of the fence, and she throws her little foot over the fence, and she starts trying to get out of the fence immediately. The second we set the boundaries, she wanted to get out. Now, what did I have first? Eden or the fence? The relationship or the rules? I had Eden first, and I had a relationship with her first, and I loved her first, and out of my love for her, I set up a boundary for her, not because I wanted to live in her fun, but because I wanted her to have flourishing within safety, within order, within control. I wanted her to have a space where life could truly flourish and be enjoyed, and she could live it to the full. And yet her first thought was, there must be something more on the other side. He must be keeping me from something. There must be something better over there. And that's our problem with our relationship with the law. We think God is trying to keep us from life, keep us from flourishing, keep us from fun, but what he's trying to do is keep us within the boundaries where life is lived in safety and protection, right? We get it with kids. We see our own kids reject it, and so often we reject it ourselves. Now, let, let, let's push that analogy just, just for a moment, and, th- and then I'll wrap, I'll wrap it up. What would have happened if Eden got over the fence? Would she have ceased to be my kid? (laughs) Hey, George, you know, Eden's in my backyard. She's in your backyard? Well, then she's not my kid anymore. I guess she's yours now. I mean, mean, good luck with her, you know. She's out of my fence. Not my problem anymore. Your your yard, your, you know, I mean, no, 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 no. If my kid gets out of my fence, they no longer cease to be my kid. When my kid gets out of my fence, what do I do as a father? I go running. I go after them. I welcome them back. If they're a child, I pull them back. If they're a little bit older, I invite them back. You see, the fence never established the relationship. The relationship was always there. And the relationship will always be there. The question is, will we choose to be in relationship? Eden will always be my kid, inside or outside of the fence. God will always be our God. God will always love us first, whether we embrace the laws or reject the laws, whether we live in their flourishing or rebel from them and seek our own ways. But friends, 
Life is lived best in the fence. Life is lived best under the guidance of the commands. I don't have time now to talk about the way that the commands are revealed, kind of the moral laws and the civil laws and the ceremonial laws and all, all of their meaning, but I want to end for us is this now. Jesus said he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Because Jesus came to fulfill the confirmation of God's relationship and love for us. He fulfilled the law by showing us the love of the Father on the cross. And so while there is much more to say, it will have to wait until next week. And perhaps we'll pick it up again and go deeper into some of these laws. But friends, I invite you into the freedom and the joy of life within the commands of God. The commands given out of love for our blessing, our benefit, and our flourishing as the people of God. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father. I, I pray that uh, even as I had to kind of push through this quickly, Lord, that this would be a profound revelation and perhaps a paradigm shift in somebody's understanding and approach to your commands, to your decrees, to your law, to know that these are given not to hinder us or to hold us back, but they are given out of love so that we might have life in connection and communion and in flourishing with you. For you are our God. You are our God who brought us out of our captivity, out of our slavery, out of our sin, out of our death. And in response to this, we want to live in the fulfillment of your love for us. And thank you, Jesus, for boiling it down and making it easy that we can love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we can love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we do this, we fulfill all the law and all the prophets when we love you and love others as you have loved us. And I pray that we as your people here at Connections and your church around the world may be this people of your love. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.